A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. Our guest this week is Julian Castro, former mayor of San Antonio and secretary of housing and urban development during the Obama administration. We're talking to Secretary Castro about the housing affordability crisis, what Democrats need to deliver for the American people, and of course, the state of Texas. But before we get to my conversation with Secretary Castro, I want to talk a little bit about a debate that is absorbing the Democratic Twitter media ecosystem lately. Last week, uh, Ezra Klein, one of my honestly favorite columnists at the New York Times, wrote what I thought was a pretty long, thoughtful column about a debate that's raging through the Democratic operatives. The key actors here are a data analyst named David Shore, who worked on the Obama campaign in 2012 and then worked at a analytics agency after that, and ultimately became quite well known for getting fired from his job. That's neither here nor there. David Shore has a particular approach to politics, which is that the Democratic Party should run on things that are popular and not talk about things that are not, which feels kind of obvious until you start digging into the details about what is and is not popular. And what Shore says is that talking about things like immigration and race and cultural issues tend to be very unpopular. They push voters towards the Republican Party. And since the Democrats need to win, at least in some places, white working class voters, we need to be really careful about what we talk about. And Shore points to this as a disconnect between the the staff, the consultants, the largely very online progressive operatives who make up much of the Democratic Party's campaign structure, and then the voters that we need to win, and the median voter in particular, is like a mid-50s white working-class man. What Shore says is that you have to follow the Obama 2012 re-election campaign model. You have to focus on the economy, run up big margins with Black and Latino voters, and persuade basically just enough white working-class voters to win. You know, putting aside some of the stuff that Shore talks about or the controversies with Shore's analysis, which include he doesn't always show his data and it doesn't quite come at this from a practical sense of he disregards the sort of structural barriers at play here, including voter suppression and gerrymandering, which we've talked about a bunch on this show. I think he's missing an important piece here, which is that message does not exist in a vacuum. What a candidate or elected official says occurs within the context of who they are, what the voter's history with them is, who their opponent is, what the other side is saying, and whether the voter even hears it in the first place. It only kind of matters what the Democratic candidate or elected official says. 
What matters just as much, if not more so, is the media ecosystem within which they're saying it. Whether Republicans are making these issues salient, which you know, Secretary Castro and I get into a little bit in which even if Democrats don't talk about immigration at all, we know Republicans will. And the fact that a lot of this isn't making its way to voters, that they're not able to hear this because there isn't a democratic ecosystem or a media infrastructure to reach them. So do I think that it it matters that Democrats run on popular things? Again, we could get into a whole separate conversation about which Democrat are we talking about here if you're only talking about the presidency and it's a very different approach than the hundreds of thousands of other Democratic candidates running for office, which is my own personal pet peeve with this. But if you're only talking about message, you are missing the broader picture. And so I think the debate is a little bit of both. We should run on popular things. We should also actually do popular things, which again, Shore doesn't talk about at all. But in the meantime, we should make sure that the things that we are talking about are being cognizant of the ecosystem in which they exist, that we are really seeing the bigger picture here. To talk about message as if it exists in a vacuum is missing the point of how people actually listen and whether they're listening at all. So I will leave it at that. Let's hear my conversation with Julian Castro. Secretary Julian Castro, welcome to Battleground. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay, there's about 100 million things I want to talk to you about. So let's get right into this. You served as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development during President Obama's second administration. So you are the perfect person to talk about the massive housing problems we are facing in this country. Can you, you know, in very simple terms, break it down? What is the crisis here and what were the causes of it? Uh, well, you know, we had a rental affordability crisis before the pandemic and coming out of the Great Recession, our home ownership rate was at one of its lowest levels in 40 years. Uh, there's a lot, of course, that's driving that. The Great Recession drove a lot of the loss of homes and uh, decline of home ownership in general. Uh, rents have been spiking across the country for a number of years, and that made them less affordable to a whole cross-section of people in our nation. It's also been decades since we've mm-hmm. invested the way that we should in housing affordability. So on public housing, for instance, we've let 10,000 units on average every year go into disrepair. We have billions and billions of dollars of backlog maintenance needs in public housing. We haven't kept up with investments in creating more supply of housing. We haven't kept up with ensuring that people who are unsheltered and sleeping on the street could at least get sheltered. So just up and down from home ownership to people that have nowhere to stay, the United States has not met what I see as an obligation to try and help ensure that everybody has a safe, decent, affordable place to live. Well, I do think there's some real tension here with the idea that everyone should be able to afford a home and housing as an investment and then affordable housing for everyone. Those things, I think, are in a lot of tension and that you often find people who will purchase a home for it to be their like the way that they generate wealth for their family, for their kids, for their grandkids, then prevent other housing from being built in their neighborhood because that might reduce the value of their own property. And it creates, I think, a lot of tension in this idea of the American dream of home ownership, in which it's for me, not for thee, as one might say. I'm wondering how you think we come into conflict with that. Yeah, well, in these days, what we see more and more of in a lot of communities is institutional investors mm-hmm. uh, that are buying up properties and either flipping them or Some are Airbnbs or whatever they are, but largely they become unavailable, unaffordable to the average American 
And because of that, the housing market just gets tighter and tighter and rental rates go up higher and higher. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are different ways that we need to address that. Mm-hmm. I would like to see better legislation at the local level, the state level, and the federal level to address it, to make both the dream of ownership and also just the ability to rent space yeah. more attainable for Americans. Um, you recently wrote an op-ed for CNN Business where you talk about fully funding the Housing Choice Voucher Program, also known as Section 8. Can you explain how those vouchers work, what it would cost, and why you're advocating for this? You know, the Housing Choice Voucher Program is a decades-old program now that essentially gives a voucher to a prospective tenant to go out into the private market and essentially present to a landlord that's willing to rent to them. And, you know, that voucher represents their payment on rent. Now, generally, they have to pay also 30% of their income Mm -hmm. toward the rent. But it's essentially a subsidy to go into the private housing market and get a place to live. And some of the benefits of this are that you're not confined in terms of where you're going to live to public housing units. It makes private housing in different neighborhoods that offer different and sometimes better opportunities more affordable to individuals and families. And so the idea is a good one. The challenges are many, though. Number one, there's not enough landlords that participate in this program. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in a lot of places, landlords will not participate. You know, there's a stigma associated with the people that participate in the program, the program itself. They think there's too much bureaucratic red tape in the program. Some localities and states have passed source of income discrimination prohibition <laughs> legislation. Basically means like no matter how somebody comes at you as a landlord with cash with credit card, with check, or with one of these vouchers, like you have to accept that source of payment. But most places don't have that. So my proposal in the campaign, and then, you know, just generally is that we need to both invest in public housing and then also amp up our investment in housing choice vouchers, both cut as much bureaucratic red tape and get more landlord participation, but then also get more vouchers out there because we have long waiting lines in Mm -hmm. every community of any size for these vouchers and hold those landlords better accountable for the living standards in many of those units, because it's not uncommon for the living standards, the maintenance of those units, not to be up to par. And just like those landlords demand, you know, that the program serve them and that they get their check, They need to be serving those residents that live in those units. The President's Build Back Better bill has a pretty big investment, $327 billion in housing over the next 10 years. That's about $90 billion for Section 8 and Section 9 vouchers, and Section 9 of which go to operators of low-income housing. But as we know, most of that bill or some pieces of that bill are going to get watered down thanks to our favorite gaslighting senators, Manchin and Cinema. the housing investments could be the first ones on the chopping block. And I can't help but think that like part of the reason why is because conservatives have successfully turned Section 8 into not so subtle racial politics, even though a plurality of Section 8 recipients are actually white. What do you make of that assessment? There's always been a racial politics around housing opportunity, <laughs> from redlining mm-hmm. to stigma around the Section 8 program to the cordoning off of the development of public housing in neighborhoods that were mostly uh, black and brown. And the legacy of that continues and the actual discrimination behind it still in the housing market. Yeah. So in addition to making 
the kind of big investment that would transform us closer into a nation where everybody can get a safe, decent, affordable place to live. We also need to enforce the Fair Housing Act of 1968 in a robust way. That's what we were trying to do in the Obama administration by putting forward a rule called affirmatively furthering fair housing that basically told communities that are getting federal taxpayer dollars through HUD, hey, you have to come up with a serious plan of how you're going to offer equal housing opportunity out there. We're not going to tell you exactly how you get there. You can have some discretion as a local community, come up with it yourself, but we're going to review that plan and make sure that it meets a certain standard. That was put on ice by the Trump administration Mm. and uh, Secretary Ben Carson. And now only under the Biden administration earlier this year did it get back on track. So I hope that affordable housing is going to be a priority in the Build Back Better Act as they negotiate that, whatever it ends up being, three and a half, three trillion, two and a half, and that we're finally going to make the kind of investment that we should make. We can't let housing as as an investment and an issue fall by the wayside again. Um, It's too important. And there are too many people throughout this country in big cities, small towns, Native American uh, tribal communities Mm -hmm. that are grappling with spiking rents. Battleground needs to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Secretary Julian Castro. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome back to Battleground. Um, Something we keep coming back to on the podcast is that Democrats need to deliver for people in order to to win re-election or election in the first place. And not just like nipping around the edges. We need to make meaningful, concrete, impactful change into the quality of people's lives. So I want to pick your brain about a couple of these efforts. Let's talk about pre-K and early education. I think it's a really important part of the reconciliation bill. Democrats want $450 billion earmarked for it. It would impact not just working families with kids, but entire communities and a larger economy. Uh, We have universal pre-K or at least parts of it here in New York City. I think it has been revolutionary for working families here. Can you talk a little bit about what the program would be and why folks, whether they have kids or not, should care? Well, this would offer uh, pre-K for three and four-year-olds in our country. It would be universal. 
there's a back and forth right now among mm. some folks who want a means test, mm. whether it's universal pre-K or, or other investments in the act. I actually think we should make it universal. Me too. Because <laughs> I think just like grades, kindergarten through 12, and hopefully soon higher education, <laughs> it should be available to you as a young person, regardless of your parents' circumstances. We made an investment using one eighth of a cent sales tax, which in San Antonio generated just over $30 million a year to significantly expand high quality full day pre-K for four-year-olds. We did that because the research is very clear that if you have a dollar to spend on education, that's best spent early Mm -hmm. when a young child's mind is developing and you have the best chance to improve their educational trajectory. Well, even better if you start them at three years old. It's going to be universal, but I I would imagine that for the three-year-olds, it's going to be optional if parents want to send their kid at three years old or not. So sometimes people get up in arms that, hey, you know, (laughs) remember it was a fight in a lot of places just to get kindergarten to be three. And in some places it's still not. They push back. Well, I have no doubt they're going to start off with a optional but universally available three and four-year-old pre-K. And that's going to be great. There are a lot of children, if we make that happen, that are going to have a stronger education. They're going to have better life outcomes. They're going to help make our nation more prosperous because we made that investment in them. Well, it also helps parents because if you have universal pre-K and you don't have to pay for childcare, (laughs) you can send your kid to school. Having lived in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years, I know that in our nation everywhere, childcare is often expensive, mm-hmm. but there are a number of different communities where it's outrageous. Yep. It costs more than sometimes going to a year of a community college or university. Uh, I mean, it's out of control. It is out of control and offering high quality full day pre-K goes above and beyond most childcare that people could get. And it's also alleviating those parents of a big financial burden. Yeah, it's something that my husband and I, as we think about eventually having a family, like staying in New York for that reason alone is enough for two years less of daycare to pay for. (laughs) I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about immigration. You have been very outspoken, and I think rightfully so, in your condemnation of the Biden administration for what is essentially seen as doubling down of Trump's immigration policies, or at least on some of it, in particular, Title 42, which, for those who may not be familiar, is a provision that allows the government to expel asylum seekers um, that have been in a country where there's a communicable disease. A lot, if not most of progressives, myself included, think that implementing Title 42 in this moment is immoral. But Part of politics um, is persuading other people to come to your side. And since the Democrats are seen as the party of caution and science when it comes to COVID, um, it might follow for some voters that we should also be cautious when it comes to letting folks into the country. It's an argument that can be made. How do you respond to that? Oh, that originally when Stephen Miller and the Trump administration put forward this idea that the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, could invoke Title 42, to summarily expel people without considering their asylum Mm -hmm. claim. The CDC pushed back. Mm -hmm. They actually didn't believe that it was in the public health interest um, at that time. And Vice President Mike Pence, among others, was part of an effort to get them to go ahead and go along with invoking Title 42. So it came under shady circumstances to begin (laughs) with that were not really tied to public health, but I think tied more to the 
xenophobia of Stephen Miller and, and many yeah. folks in the Trump administration, but taking the argument at face value about public health. Look, for somebody to hear it and they hear like, okay, well, you have thousands of people at the border and they've made this long journey and they've all been huddled near each other. And doesn't that present a public health concern? Look, yeah, we've seen these pictures of <laughs> 105,000 people in football stadiums, yeah. right? These college students huddled together. That presents a concern too. A lot of health concerns right now. <laughs> so the answer to that is, of course, you, you can take that argument, right? And, and I think it's a legitimate question to raise. The answer is that there are much better and more humane and effective ways to ensure that people are not en masse bringing COVID into mm -hmm. the country. You know, you can require that they get testing and many of the folks are tested that do come across. You can require that they get a vaccination. You know, I would not have a problem with saying, okay, if you want to make your asylum claim, then it's a requirement of our country. You're going to be on this soil that you get a COVID vaccine. You can quarantine to be even more careful about mm -hmm. what people are doing. Now, there are operational issues and resources that would have to be expended to do that. But that's where I think our values come in, that we're, we ought to be a nation that is big enough and mature enough and compassionate enough to deal with this in a humane way. And we're a nation of 330 million people. We're the wealthiest nation on the history of the planet. So it's hard to convince me that we can't manage uh, some thousands of people who are seeking asylum and ensure that they're not going to spread COVID um, and ensure that, you know, we know where they're at and that there's a process to adjudicate their asylum claim. The vast majority of people, even who get to claim asylum, do not actually get it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I believe that we should go that route instead of the route that uh, the Trump administration and now, unfortunately, the Biden administration has gone. And for me, you know, I, of course, supported Joe Biden in the fall of 2020 yeah. and applaud a lot of the things that he, the administration are doing. Right. I'm very happy that we have <laughs> Joe Biden in the Oval Office instead of Donald Trump. At the same time, I have to I have to say, you know, I'm really disappointed both in the president personally and in the administration for what I see as a ruse of using Title 42 really for political cover instead of facing this issue head on. And in the meantime, thousands and thousands of Haitians whose lives have been devastated mm -hmm. there and other people who are desperate don't even get to make their asylum claim, which has not happened before in the United States. We've been talking a lot over various um, episodes of this show about the way in which people are angry at the wrong person. Uh, Maurice Mitchell and the Working Families Party in particular had some really interesting insights here of one of the difficulties of organizing folks is that it is so hard to be mad at the people who are actually the problem. Corporations, billionaires, you know, the most sort of quote unquote powerful among us because like, what is being mad at them, sir? They're not going to change their mind. They're not going to do anything. Being mad at them doesn't help. So instead, you be mad at what might feel like punching down or punching out of you know, you find sort of someone to be the enemy that it feels like you can actually be. And for a lot of people, unfortunately, the focus of that rage has become the immigrant community writ large. Can you talk a little bit about the anti-immigrant sentiment in a country that is ironically made up predominantly of descendants of immigrants, descendants of slaves, descendants and current displaced people? What do you think it's actually at the root here? We know that 
from one generation to the next that immigrants have been made to be boogeymen. Mm -hmm. And at one time that was uh, the Germans. <laughs> if you go back far enough in our, in our country, the Irish, the Italians, Chinese, Mexicans, today, these folks from the Northern Triangle or Haitians, and not only in the United States, but really in places around the world, we know that this is a common sentiment and a, a, a demon that societies have to deal with, this xenophobia. We also know that we've seen periods where the better angels of a nation prevail. And I think in this country that generally, like with a lot of things on immigration policy, we've generally gotten better and better, right? We've made more and more progress. What we're dealing with today is a Republican Party under Donald Trump that wants to play that boogeyman politics and to stoke racial angst among its base. And it sees this as the perfect issue. These are brown and black people who, as Tucker Carlson swears basically up and down every night, they're trying to replace you. Yeah. If it didn't work, they wouldn't do it. Unfortunately, with too many people in our country, it works. That just means for those of us who want us to be better and urgently believe that we can be better, then we can't be afraid to make the other argument. And one of my concerns with the administration is that it's not even really making the argument. And if you let their argument go on and on and the xenophobia continue without really presenting the other side of the argument, then at some point you just get overwhelmed. I believe that little by little, the administration is going to get better on these things, but I had just hoped that it would be sooner. And I agree with you on the ease of blaming undocumented immigrants mm -hmm. or asylum seekers, or in some communities, refugees who have come from other countries. Instead of taking a look at the bigger issue of powerful corporations and individuals with their army of lobbyists and lawyers writing their own legislation, getting tax breaks, getting the best of the system that's rigged for them, while everyday people of different colors in different parts of the country get basically paid less and less and have to do more and more work and are able to not go as far as previous generations because the system is so rigged. There have been some comments in the media recently, particularly uplifted by a column by Ezra Klein in the New York Times, that maybe the Democrats shouldn't emphasize immigration if they want to win national elections. What is your take here? Oh, I recognize that it's a thorny politics. Yeah. And I'm also realistic about the reaction that that issue gets around a lot of people, not only Republicans, but also some Democrats that hold views that you would think you're a Democrat, you wouldn't have. So I'm not unrealistic about the sentiment behind it, but I think that we have to find a way to confront the issue or else it's always that demon. Yeah. It's always this third rail that you can't touch. And in the meantime, people's lives are being harmed by that. And just to, to talk the pure politics of it, I mean, we had a president that was threatening nuclear war over Twitter. Mm -hmm. We had a president that's convinced a large part of a, one party that the entire election was stolen from him. It was a fraud. And those are just a couple of examples. People's attitudes can be changed, but you have to at least be willing to engage and make the argument. Yeah, I think you frame it very well. Even if Democrats don't want to talk about immigration for whatever political reason, one, we should take action on it regardless of whether we're talking about it. But two, Republicans are going to talk about it. 
So someone's voice is going to be heard here. And I think something's going unrebutted is a real problem. Let's take another break. But Battleground will be right back with more from Secretary Julian Castro. And we're back. Texas. Um, Texas has been a hot topic on Battleground. We talked to Jessica Hoosman a couple weeks ago from VoteBeat about the decades-long effort to suppress the vote. Last week, we talked to Christina Zinzun Ramirez from Next Gen America about how those efforts specifically affect young voters um, who are incredibly diverse and also much more likely to vote progressives if they show up at the polls, which we've talked about with Daily. The map is heading back to the Texas Senate. It will likely get approved. It really... I can say that it really fucks over Democrats. (laughs) What can we do to fight back about what could possibly be a decade or more of entrenched Republican power? I mean, the best hope right now are the courts. Mm. We have precedent for maps being overturned because the evidence was there in Texas and in other places, but most recently in Texas, that there was discriminatory intent with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and preclearance and the fact that we do have a more conservative Supreme Court now than we did a few years ago, I know the prospect of the court system solving this problem is harder than it has been in a long time. But I think probably right now that's still our best hope. In Texas, Democrats don't control the governor's mm-hmm. office. They don't control the state Senate or the state house. There is the usual back and forth among politicians of both parties trying to preserve their advantage in their own district. But that only goes so far. The maps that have been produced already are, as you said, (laughs) basically ignoring the fact that 90 or 95 percent of the growth in this state has been from people of color and more than 50 percent has been from the Latinx community. So, you know, my hope is that the courts are going to do something about that. There's no question these things are going to get challenged. In the meantime, the other remedy is the ballot box. And we have to do everything that we can in Texas in 2022 to vote these folks out. Hopefully before then as well, Washington is going to actually act. We had hoped that the For the People Act would pass along with the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Now the Freedom to Vote Act is the closest thing we have to a compromise that might be able to work. That's important because that's retroactive. That would affect some of what Texas has done. And so with the courts, with federal legislation, and then with people showing up at the polls, you know, that's our best hope to beat back this attempt to rig the system to entirely benefit one political party. Was there a moment, if you look back on the history of Texas politics over, I don't know, the last 30 or 40 years, was there a moment where Democrats could have done something differently to change the trajectory of where we landed? Uh, I think Democrats could have done a lot differently over the years. You know, Democrats up until a certain point, they included a lot of conservatives Mm. and a lot of the conservative Democrats left the Democratic Party like they did nationally as it emphasized civil rights more and more Mm. and women's rights and these quote unquote lefty or liberal (laughs) concerns that really are concerns about, you know, making sure everybody is represented and has a voice. But what we could have been doing better back then is really building organization and getting people registered and having a voice. Like, I'll give you a perfect example of that. South Texas, that every, that has been in the mm-hmm. news. Some counties down there performed better for Trump than anybody expected they would. I mean, South Texas, under both Democratic and Republican administrations, never got the investment in universities, mm-hmm. public school funding, 
in highways and infrastructure, in its people. And that's largely a Mexican-American part of the state, like overwhelmingly. So if we had made those investments back then, at least we would have a legacy to point to it there. This doesn't go for the entirety of the state, but there, you know, to build on in addition to if we had organized, right? But we didn't do those things. We didn't make those investments when Democrats had power. That was a mistake of Democrats back then. Mm-hmm. And some of it was based on the historical bigotry that existed. And, you know, kind of took for granted that folks were going to vote Democratic in the fall and didn't spend and invest and persuade the way that you need to, to turn people out and to keep them on your side. And that's one of the reasons that we're seeing some of the issues. Now, I want to be clear, like what the Republicans offer them is so much less yeah, and is against their interests. And since Republicans have controlled the state, they have not invested in those areas. They've done an injustice to those areas. But, you know, if, we're, if we could go back and change something, it would be we could have done more back then when we did have power. Do you think it's possible that um, Republicans in Texas have gone too far? I think like the abortion bill is a really good example here of banning abortion is one thing creating a system where any person could sue someone else for facilitating an abortion and win $10,000 and basically creating a surveillance state of bounty hunters might be a little bit too far, even for people who don't love the idea of access to abortion. Is it possible to be too conservative for Texas? No, of course. I mean, these guys are cavemen. (laughs) They're living on borrowed political time. Really? Where they're at, Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick and Ken Paxton They're cavemen. That's not where the state is at. I don't know that it it was ever that far to the right, but if it was, it's certainly not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Communities in not only the big cities, but also the suburbs around them have grown enormously over the last couple of decades. People expect something different from their state government. I think a lot of people right now are both afraid of the consequences of things like the abortion ban and also embarrassed by the leadership of this state. And you've started, and and maybe more to the point, you've started to clearly see that in in the election results, right? Obama losing the state by 16 points in 2012, uh, Hillary losing it by nine points in 2016, and Biden losing it by five and a half points in 2020. In the 2018 cycle, Democrats picking up 12 state house seats, two state Senate seats, and two congressional seats suburbs like Fort Bend County adjacent to Harris, which has Houston, Mm -hmm. and Williamson County adjacent to Travis, which has Austin, other parts of the state like the DFW suburbs, becoming more democratic, electing county supervisors that are democratic, city council members. When when people kind of, you know, read between the lines of the the main headlines that come out of the state, this is what's driving their anxiety Mm. and their desperate last ditch effort to try and hold on and to do voter suppression and, you know, to play the red meat to their base. They're trying to eke out as much as they can from a diminishing slice of the pie. And they're only going to be able to do it for so long. They're throwing a a very dangerous temper tantrum. No doubt. No doubt. Bottom line, they're going to face a backlash. Mm. And as they face that backlash, it's going to accelerate the state turning over. Do you think someone with your perspectives can win statewide? Oh, for sure. Good. <laughs> I'm confident that Democrats, progressives are going to win in the state in 
the not so distant future in the next couple of cycles. Maybe if Beto O'Rourke runs, mm-hmm. can win in 2022 for governor. And again, I think that, you know, it's because you're in comparison to what? Yeah. Comparison to these guys that don't want to allow people to have control of their own bodies uh, and set up this bounty hunter system to try and prevent that. Can't even manage keeping the lights on and several hundred Texans die in a storm, winter storm, you know, can't keep people safe from COVID, won't even let schools require masks. All of that, when you compare what progressives are offering with what these folks are offering, I mean, that's what elections are. They're the comparison. And I I like our odds going forward. When you think about what your future in politics looks like, does it include running for statewide eventually? Future? You don't have to break news today, but is that? I'm wondering how you think about that decision, knowing the politics of Texas. I mean, it might. Sure. Yeah. The way that I feel now is that I just ran this marathon of 2019 and then 2020 campaigning for others mm. uh, and through the PAC, People First Future, helping other candidates and causes. The silver lining of the last 18 months for me is that I had been on the road like 75% of the time for several years at HUD and then especially on the campaign, finally had an opportunity to be at home and you know watch my kids grow up a little bit. And I want to do that for a little bit longer. And I'm doing interesting things that I want to do, but I probably will jump back in at some point, just not in 2022. Amazing. Um, Finally, an issue near and dear to my heart. You began your political career in local politics. You were the youngest city councilor in San Antonio's history, and then you were mayor of San Antonio. As regular listeners know, my day job uh, is running Run for Something, which helps elect young progressives to local offices. I started it with a former friend, employee of yours, Ross Morales Riqueta, campaign staffer. I think Democrats have a myopic focus on federal elections. We chase the shiny object at the top of the ticket, and that hurts us tremendously because the real power is both in state and local politics, but also state and local organizing. You know, the, the work to organize around a Texas school board or county judge election furthers the broader effort. <laughs> you have won local elections. You've also worked in the federal government. What is your opinion here? Yeah, you and Ross mm-hmm. uh, have talked about this reverse coattails effect yeah. that organizing local candidates to run and oftentimes for the first time and activate these networks of family and friends and coworkers and neighbors who otherwise might not be activated and are excited because their, their friend or their family member or their neighbor or coworker is running for office. There is nothing quite like a local campaign that is actually rooted in the relationships that exist on the ground in communities at getting people excited and invested in the democratic process. I saw that really up close when I ran for city council and then for mayor. And the scale of it and that y'all are achieving Mm -hmm. and helping to spur on, when you scale that up, people might say, oh, well, what is it going to matter? I mean, you know, one person running in a council district that has 30,000 people in it or something, or even less in a smaller town. But when you scale that up across a state and across a country, it makes an enormous difference in bringing people that might not vote or are only occasional voters into the fold. And people who a lot of times, as you know, I mean, most people don't follow this stuff as much as we do and the people listening to this podcast do. A lot of people are apolitical. But if they have a relationship with somebody that is running or somebody close to somebody running, all of a sudden, then they start to pay more attention and they tend to gravitate toward that part of the spectrum 
partisan-wise or ideologically. So it has this ripple effect that you just, you know, you, you can't necessarily tell just by the name of the position that somebody is running for. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about the work that y'all are doing mm-hmm. and and generally about the potential for local candidates to help lead the way in the kind of revival that we need in so many places, including in my home state of Texas. I mean, you you articulated this so well of the way that we know that Republicans in Texas are running on borrowed time is that on the local level, Democrats are starting to win in places they haven't before. And that's how you sort of build up the power is now you have a county judge that can help raise money for the rest of the Democrats in the community and can go into the neighborhood and can also govern in a way that makes people's lives better, which goes a long way towards helping to give Democrats something concrete to campaign on, bringing it full circle. Julian Castro, thank you for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much to Secretary Julian Castro for joining me on Battleground this week. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating and an excellent review, good notes only, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Adovino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 